quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline, Shameless. President Trump has said he wants an immediate trial. Why? Because he wants vindication from his Republican friends in the Senate. He wants to rub a potential acquittal in the faces of Democrats who voted to impeach him on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. That, Mr. President, goes in the history books, whether you like it or not. But House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has delayed sending the impeachment articles to the Senate, setting up a battle with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I don't think they suspected that we could have a rogue president and a rogue leader in the Senate at the same time. I admit, I'm not sure what leverage there is in refraining from sending us something we do not want. It's a risk on Pelosi's part, but it's also one of her last available levers to influence the next step of impeachment after both McConnell and Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham said openly that they will not be impartial jurors. I'll have more on the Senate chess match in a bit and why I'm I'm not sure an acquittal is a sure thing. But the bottom line is this. Nothing's happening until Congress returns on January 6th. Democrats insisted that impeachment was not political, not partisan, not because they don't like Donald Trump. They insisted this was about constitutional duties. I believe that's mostly true. And I believe impeachment was warranted. But I have a feeling that impeaching Trump was also about something else, shaming him. Since he was elected, Democrats and never-Trumpers and the resistance, they've salivated at the idea of something, anything, finally chastening Donald Trump. There was this mythical idea that one day he'd do something so terrible, so obviously awful, that it would realign the cosmos and the universe would unanimously consent that he is now indefensible. He would accept that verdict and slink off to the dustbin of history, tail between his legs, head hanging in shame, sentenced to live out the rest of his life in eternal dishonor and disrepute. And we would all get the satisfaction of being able to say, I told you so, It's a nice thought, but it's la-la land. This president, as we've long known, is incapable of shame. Even when he does the terrible, the obviously awful things, he doesn't feel terrible or awful about it. Remember, this is a person who made fun of a disabled journalist, who attacked a Gold Star family, who mocked a prisoner of war for being a prisoner of war, bullied a teenage girl with Asperger's syndrome. He disparages the memory of distinguished dead Americans, plural. He said things that are racist, sexist, xenophobic, childish, and defensible. And have you ever heard him apologize? Here's the deal. Trump is incapable of shame. And yet, I truly believe Democrats think impeaching him will somehow provoke some introspection, that it will change his behavior. Well, on the very evening of his impeachment, 
Here was Trump at a rally in Michigan, looking and sounding very ashamed of what he'd done. A dishwasher, did the dishwasher, right? You press it. Remember the dishwasher, you press it, boom, there'd be like an explosion. Five minutes later, you open it up, the steam pours out, the dishes. Now you press it 12 times. Women tell me. And there was this shameful attack on Congresswoman Debbie Dingell's late husband. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down, he'd be so Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay, don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up, I don't know. On the day Bill Clinton was impeached, he gave a remorseful, somber six-minute address from the White House. On the night of Trump's, he threw a party. Here's what actor and frequently foul-mouthed Trump critic Robert De Niro said this week. He said, I'd like to see a bag of S-word right in his face. Hit him right in the face like that and let the picture go all over the world. And that would be the most humiliating thing because he needs to be humiliated. He needs to be confronted and humiliating. Well, that's a little perverse, but it's also physically impossible. So dispatch with the revenge fantasies to shame someone they must be capable of that emotion. When impeachment fails to constrain the president, who believes he did nothing wrong, well, what does that mean for the coming year? Will an emboldened president do the things he's accused of again? Will he try to tamper with the election? On the legislative side, will he be more liberal with executive authority, more vindictive against his opponents in Congress? Will he increasingly go it alone on issues of national security and foreign policy, like abandoning our allies in Syria? Putting our feelings aside, an impeached president who doesn't feel impeached could be a very dangerous man. Joining me now to discuss Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Congressman, I have a lot of questions for you about, about the very real consequences uh, of the president's lack of shame. But first, I, I want to acknowledge something important off the top. Last night, President Trump signed into law the Caesar Act. It's a bill you co-sponsored which sanctions Bashar al-Assad, Russia, and Iran for its war crimes. It's a significant piece of legislation that lets the world know there are consequences, finally. And it showed that bipartisanship isn't dead. Your quick thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree. And uh, you've taken a very strong leadership role on this, too. You have deep passion for the people of Syria, so you're to be commended uh, for pushing this. It was a big win. And, uh, you know, we've made some huge mistakes in Syria, but this is a win for certain. Uh, well, thank you for, for your um, fighting on this as well. Okay, um, I know you don't support everything the president says and does, unlike many of your colleagues in Congress. Um, you have been critical of him, and I assume you do not condone his comments about Debbie Dingell's late husband. Uh, but do you have concerns as a member of, for example, the Foreign Affairs Committee that Trump will continue trying to persuade foreign leaders or foreign actors to meddle in our elections? Yeah, I mean, there's always a concern. I, you know, I don't think it's going to, like, go off the rails all of a sudden now because he's impeached and he doesn't care. Mm. Um, but I do think, you know, there's been some huge challenges on foreign policy. You know, I, we've made some gains in NATO in terms of what they're spending, but also NATO's unsure 
that the U.S. will be there to defend them. If Article uh, if Article Five is invoked, uh, an attack on one, an attack on all, we see what's happened in Syria. Right. Uh, I think there's some good success actually in Iran, and and uh, and it seems like maybe we're here. North Korea is getting ready to test a big missile. So I don't think that necessarily impeachment is going to change anything. Uh, but like you said, I like a lot of the president's policies. A lot of the tone I don't like, and you know the mm-hmm. attack on on. Uh, uh, on Congressman Dingell, I served with him for two years, and I'll tell you, he's an honorable man and a great American, even if I disagree on some things. Sure. Uh, so the Washington Post reports that Trump believes Ukraine was meddling in our elections, which contradicts all our own intelligence, because Putin told him it was true. And now his administration opposes a bill that would would deter Russia from further interfering in our elections. Isn't Trump's indifference to Russian meddling a problem that even impeachment you know, won't solve. I think it's a huge problem. And I think, you know, the big problem is this, when the faith in democracy is undermined, right? And that's whether you don't think your vote counts or whether you think somebody else is influencing the outcome of an election. Uh, That's actually really dangerous for the existence of a democracy. When you start to see, and by the way, this is to both left and right, when you start to see the people in the other party as the biggest enemy and not your actual enemies overseas, uh, that's how democracies fail in the long term. So I've never understood, and I've been very clear from the very beginning, the, the, the hesitancy to call out Russia and to fight Russia for what they're doing uh, because it has very real consequences. And we see it in Eastern Europe, for instance, and we see it in, in other places where democracy is challenged right now. So I think, I think we have to lean forward on this big time. I think Congress has done it. And uh, where Congress has passed laws uh, and made it clear the executive's job is to execute those laws, not, yeah. laws, not to determine if they don't want to do them. So what, let's talk about stuff back at home. Um, late last night, Trump signed two spending packages totaling $1.4 trillion, and that avoids a government shutdown, which is, is nice at the holidays. But um, last March, he vowed never to sign an omnibus spending bill like that again. Yet here we are. Are you worried he'll continue to break some of his own domestic promises now that he sees that there's few, few consequences? No, look, the omnibus bill is a result of government that doesn't do anything until the last minute. That's how it is. Everybody thinks they're going to hold and maintain leverage. Uh, And so they wait and we wait and we go up to a shutdown. Nobody wants to shut the government down. And then they throw all this stuff together. It's a really broken way that we do budgeting. And uh, this is why there's efforts to make it a two-year cycle, whatever. Something else needs to happen because we end up in this. This is, by the way, way better than continuing resolutions, which we were doing for a very long time. Um, but, you know, look, it's, 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 it's wrong. And, and the problem is, again, we're starting to see, I say we collectively as a country, the other party, we're so offended by the existence of another party with a different opinion that we see them as the biggest enemies now. And so we hold back on leverage because we don't want anybody to get a win no matter what it means. That's the yeah. dangerous thing right now. And that's my hope in the long term to, to, to change the tone in, this pol- in politics. Be passionate about what you believe, but stop thinking of the other side as the enemy because they're not. That is a terrific New Year's resolution, and I hope you just sent, you know, you sent it out into the ether. I hope it is received. Uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thanks so much for coming on. You, you bet, see ya. On to the Senate. Eventually, when the trial of President Trump begins, it's more than just his legacy at stake. I'll explain. And a little later, I'll talk to one of the 2020 candidates hoping to unseat the president in an election. Andrew Yang joins us next.
While articles of impeachment are being held up in the House for now, they will eventually go to the Senate, where 67 senators of 100 would need to vote to convict and remove the president. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has already dismissed that idea, saying President Trump will be acquitted. Now, conventional wisdom is he's right. Can you imagine a full 20 Republicans in the Senate defecting from Republican loyalty to Trump? I can't either. But I do think we will see some, maybe even more than a few. Why? Well, this is the stuff legacies are made on. And plenty of Republicans in the Senate are thinking long and hard about their own entries in the history books. With me now to discuss is the senior congressional correspondent at The Washington Post, Paul Kane, Republican strategist Doug High, and Democratic analyst Joel Payne. Okay, PK, you covered the Clinton impeachment, not to uh, not to age you, and you've covered Congress for almost 20 years, so you've seen it all. Yeah. What's the mood like in Washington right now? Oh, it's it's it. Well, it's quiet because everybody left town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but those last couple of days were were very fiery. Um, and Mitch McConnell, the morning after the House impeachment, um, he has been his opening remarks have only touched at impeachment for months now. Boy, he went 30 straight minutes basically saying there's nothing to this case. Yeah, it's it's pointless. But we're going to go ahead and do a trial. And then Schumer came out and he was Mm -hmm. yelling. It was a very tense atmosphere. um, And it really set the stage for what could be a really pretty bitter partisan fight compared to where it was 21 years ago, Mm -hmm. where there was some semblance of comedy. Yeah. Uh, Okay, Doug, Joel, let's go through the potential Republican senators uh, that could conceivably vote to convict. Um, my most likely is Mitt Romney because he's not up for re-election until 2024. So he's got the longest runway uh, to do this without immediate consequences. How likely do you think a Mitt Romney vote to convict and impeach would Right be? now, I don't think it's terribly likely because you, huh. you use the word legacy. You have to get re-elected to have a legacy, ultimately. And these senators know... Uh, not only the the approval that Trump has within the party, but how intense that approval is. They don't hear yes. from their voters that they like Donald Trump. They hear from their voters that they're not doing enough for Donald Trump. That's and that's true, a very but don't big you think, difference. Do you think someone like Mitt Romney is pretty safe in Utah? You, in theory, sure. Mm-hmm. But but the reality is when you get on the ground, even in Utah where, where Trump isn't as popular yeah. um, as he is in some other states, right. the intensity of the Trump voter is massive. Every time yeah. I go home to North Carolina, I'm su- I, I had been surprised to the point I'm not surprised anymore. Yeah. It's the first thing they talk, people talk about. It's the last thing they talk about. Mm-hmm. And it's intense. Joel, your thoughts on Romney? Well, I think Romney's a possibility because, to the point that we were making before, he's, he, President Trump is not as popular in Utah That's right. as he is in other places. I look at the Senate vulnerable, the, the vulnerable 2020 Senate Republicans. Right, no, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Okay. No, right. for sure. Uh, because Yes, obviously, they've got the most to lose. But first, I want to go to the next, the 2022 gotcha. um, electeds. That's Lisa Murkowski, also Pat Toomey. Not up until 2022. Does I, that I give that, yeah, them I, I some? Think, I think those folks, the, the, the thing I would think about here is that Schumer has really set this up to be about whether or not you support a fair trial, not whether you support impeachment. Those are two very different right, questions, right, right? Right, right? And I think that he feels like I can unite my caucus and I can drive a wedge in the Republican caucus if I force them to vote on a fair trial, on witnesses, uh-huh. on timing, on things of that nature. And so notice what Schumer was talking about. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, he's not talking about 67 votes for impeachment. No one's talking about that. It's sure. about the trial. Murkowski, to me. 
I mean, again, potentially sure, but the, the difficulty that they have is if they want to win again, voters are going to remember, and we should remember, keep yeah. in mind, Donald Trump's not going anywhere. Even if, if he's impeached and removed, which he won't be, he's not going to go anywhere. As long right. as he has two thumbs, we're going to hear from Donald Trump. And that means that those members and those senators are going to hear from their voters. So then there's um, the 2020s, Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, Tom Tillis, uh, Ben Sass, I think is less likely than maybe some of those. I think Cory Gardner's thinking long and hard. I think Gardner, Gardner and Collins in particular are, are, in a, are in a vice. They're, you know, they can't figure out what's the right thing to do for a primary right. versus the general election. Right. There is still time for somebody to run a primary challenge against Gardner and Collins. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to vote to convict and remove a president of your party and expect that a few months later you could win the primary. But gosh, you've got to win the general to be back in 2021. So mm-hmm. they're in the toughest box. Yeah. You know, I've seen some really tough poll numbers in all of those states, in Maine, yeah. in Colorado, in North Carolina, uh-huh. for those incumbent Republicans. Mm-hmm. So both their unfavorables, but also President Trump's favorability. That's a, that, those are tough numbers for those folks you know, to deal it's with. It's tough, but uh, flip that around. Does that maybe give them, uh, you know, an idea to say, look, I'm going to vote on my conscience then, and I'm going to vote him out because I'm, I might not get reelected anyway. If, if they think they're doomed, they have a freedom that other members don't. But I go back to the day after the Access Hollywood tape. I was uh, home in North Carolina, and I went to two events with my old boss, Richard Burr. And he talked about his need while he was upset with the comments, so he criticized the comments, his need to make sure that he overperformed Donald Trump. So if you're Tom Tillis, if you're Cory Gardner, if you're uh, Martha McSally, if you come out somehow against Trump, mm-hmm. you are guaranteed that you do not overperform him. And that mm-hmm. puts you in a very, very vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. And PK, um, on the other side, there's also a possibility of maybe some Democrat defections, like someone like Joe Manchin, yeah, for Joe, example. Yeah, Joe Manchin just won re-election. He has a lot of runway, as you said, yeah. about Romney. Um, and I'm not even sure he's running again in 2024. Um, so he has the freedom to, to vote however he wants. But he really enjoys this position as he the does. Democrat that Trump likes to call. Yeah. And if he votes to convict Trump, that kind of disappears. Doug Jones from Alabama is also in a tough position. That's true. Uh, I don't know how he wins that race. Again, right. Without a Roy Moore as the nominee. So I'm not sure what he'll do uh, on, the, on the final vote. Essie, really quickly, watch, yeah. look at a gang of six or a gang of eight, uh-huh. maybe four Republicans, four Democrats in the middle, like a Manchin, a Collins, a Murkowski. Right. Those folks, they might get together and say, we're going to force a vote on censure. We're right. going to force a vote on something that's short of impeachment. That's very possible. I think yeah. Nancy Pelosi's probably been ramp. trying to identify those that gang, put that coalition together. Okay, PK, Doug High, Joel Bain, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you. Next up, on to the presidential race, where the Democrats are struggling with important issues like wine caves. And a little later, I'll speak with one of those candidates, Andrew Yang. In the red file tonight, wine caves. If you hadn't heard of them before, you sure have now. It was a big point of contention in the Democratic debate this week. A wine cave is an actual place where Mayor Pete Buttigieg had a fundraiser last Sunday. But it's also a metaphor some Democrats are using to paint him as a little too bougie, a little out of touch, beholden to the high-dollar donors who don't represent everyday Americans. Here was Elizabeth Warren trying her best to make this a thing during Thursday's PBS NewsHour Politico debate. We made the decision 
many years ago that rich people in smoke-filled rooms would not pick the next president of the United States. Billionaires in wine caves should not pick the next president of the United States. Mr. But Buttigieg was having none of it, pointing out he was the only non-millionaire or billionaire on the stage. Senator, your presidential campaign right now, as we speak, is funded in part by money you transferred, having raised it at those exact same big-ticket fundraisers you now denounce. Did it corrupt you, Senator? Of course not. These purity tests shrink the stakes of the most important election. So is Buttigieg right? Do these purity tests wound the eventual nominee in the Democrats' quest to beat Trump? With me now is former New York congressman and former chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, Joe Crowley. So, Congressman, what did you make of the wine cave moment? Was was Warren making a good point or was she just trying to paint Buttigieg as, you know, bought and paid for? Great to be with the SC. I Thanks. think that Buttigieg gave it as much as he got it. Uh, he was right back at uh, Elizabeth Warren and reminded yeah. her of the money that she had, uh, had, she had raised as a senator and then transferred over to her account and really did bring some clarity, though it's not easy to run for elective office, federal elective office. Uh, you know, very few people have, you know, two or three million or four million Twitter followers, et cetera, where they can right. roll out an email or a text and say, please help me. Uh, so they, they do it kind of the old-fashioned way. They kind of are trying to raise as much money as they possibly can, possibly can to stay in the race. If you remember, Tim Ryan, uh, uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, left the presidential race. And when he was asked about that, he said, I ran out of money. I don't have right. the money to do it anymore, and I can't raise anymore. Right. And we should uh, point out um, Pete Buttigieg raising money legally. Correct. Uh, but, yeah. but you lost, I mean, you lost your seat to a progressive Democrat who talks like Elizabeth Warren does about wealthy people. Um, that kind of worked in Queens. Do you think it's going to work in the rest of the country? Yeah, I, I don't know if you can necessarily take what happened in my district in Queens and the Bronx and transpose it to national elections uh, yeah. in all fairness. I, I do think uh, that uh, you know, the Supreme Court uh, has ruled that you know, campaign giving is a, portion, a part of free speech, uh, that uh, the, the House and the Senate, uh, through various uh, bills and laws that have been passed, have regulated that speech. Uh, to some degree, uh, but all Americans have the opportunity to participate and to help candidates whom they think uh, represent their values and they see yeah. as a viable uh, presidential candidate. So I think playing by those rules and doing it legally, you know, uh, the, the opportunity to kind of attack someone when they're playing by the rules, I, I think, is, is, is not really all that fair. Let's talk about Joe Biden. The latest CNN sure. poll has him sitting uh, at the top of the field nationally, and he had a, he had a strong debate. Here's what he said about working with Republicans. I refuse to accept the notion, as some on this stage do, that we can never, never get to a place where we have cooperation again. If that's the case, we're dead as a country. We need to be able to reach consensus. And if anyone has reason to be angry with the Republicans and not want to cooperate, it's me, the way they've attacked me and my son and my family. I have no, no, no love. You know, progressives have hit him uh, in the past for saying nice things about Republicans. Uh, but most voters actually want more cooperation in Congress. So are his, you know, competitors in the Democratic primary, are they listening to voters in that? 
Actually, uh, see, I, th I thought that was one of his strongest moments uh, in the debate yeah. itself. Yeah. You know, the, the absolutists, the people who say that my way or no way, my way or the highway, you know, that's easy, I guess, uh, especially in primaries, both in the Republican when they have primaries and the Democratic primaries as well. But to actually get something done, and much of the work you saw Congress accomplish, even here at the end of the year and the wrap-up, was done in a very, very bipartisan way on appropriations right. and a number of bills that uh, on the Ways and Means Committee, really moving, working with the White House, even if you don't like the man in charge, uh, knowing, understanding that you have to get certain things done to keep the clocks running. And I think that's an important thing that Joe Biden, it's a strength that Joe Biden, I think, brings to this campaign. Um, the Trump campaign is launching a Democrats for Trump um, campaign. Uh, the press release says it's a coalition designed to attract and engage disaffected Democrats who will refuse to support witch hunts, sham impeachments, or radical big government socialist policies. Now, I mean, cut through some of that melodrama. Uh, this actually strikes me as a smart strategy. Do you think it could see any success? I, I imagine there's probably more Republicans who are, are going to be supportive of a Democrat against this president, quite <laughs> yeah. frankly. Uh, you know, it's a fair play. Look, there's always going to be outliers out there. And I think we saw, saw that in New Jersey. Uh, folks who maybe even feel more comfortable, you know, in Republican clothing than Democratic clothing. Mm -hmm. And that's fair play to them. They have that opportunity. But I think in the end, you're probably going to see more, as I said earlier, more Republicans supporting the Democratic nominee. I meet them all the time, quite frankly, than, yeah. the, than the opposite happening. Uh, I do as well. We'll all have, have to see how it all shakes out uh, in November. But for yes. now, yeah. um, former Congressman Joe Crowley, thanks so much thanks, for joining Jessica. me. Happy holidays. You too. Okay, make America think again. It's math for short. I'll ask my next, next guest about his calculations on a pretty strong economy and how that factors into his pitch to voters. Andrew Yang is next. In 2020, one election, two very different economies. By concrete and legitimate indicators, the economy is performing well. Economic numbers released Friday confirm strong growth. The GDP grew by 2.1 percent last quarter, bolstered by a job market with a record low 3.5 unemployment rate. Third quarter growth in consumer spending was stronger than expected at 3.2 percent. And Americans are feeling it. Fueled by the 10th straight year of economic growth, the latest CNN poll shows 76 percent of Americans rate the economy as very or somewhat good, the highest percentage in nearly 20 years. But the 2020 Democratic candidates told a very different story on the debate stage Thursday night. Middle class is getting killed. Middle class is getting crushed. The biggest problem in our economy is simple. People are not getting paid enough. I'm proud to stand on a stage with Democrats who understand that a rising GDP, rising corporate profits is not being felt by millions of families across this country. Trump goes around saying the economy is doing great. Do you know what real inflation accounted for wages went up last year? 1.1 percent. That ain't great. He can yell all, he's, all he wants, but it's never been a successful strategy to tell voters that they're wrong about how they feel. And right now they feel pretty good about the economy. So how's this message going to work? With me now is Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Uh, Mr. Yang, I am 
bad at math. You are very good at math, as you like to point out. But even I know that uh, the politics of telling 76% of Americans that they're wrong about how they feel is just bad math. Um, the economy's good. It's not good for everybody, uh, but it's good. Does Trump deserve any credit for that? Well, if you have an irresponsible tax cut that boosts the bottom lines of certain corporations, then of course you're going to see a short-term boost out of that. Okay. But if you go to Americans around the country, 78% say they're living paycheck to paycheck. Almost half say they can't afford an unexpected $500 bill. And the fact is, the stock market has less and less relationship with how most Americans right. are living day to day. Yeah. The bottom 80% of, of Americans own 8% of stock market wealth. The bottom 50% own essentially zero. Yeah. And when Donald Trump was running for president, when he talked about the headline unemployment rate, what did he say? He said this was fake news, doesn't include the fact that millions right. are dropping out of the workforce. And now that he's president, all of a sudden the numbers are real. Mm -hmm. He was right the first time. The headline unemployment rate obscures a really rough reality for many, many Americans. Okay. So just to ask it again, he doesn't deserve credit for this current good economy. Again, if you have an irresponsible tax cut that puts $1.5 onto the bottom lines of the biggest corporations, you're going to see some short-term benefits. Okay, so you've said that Trump's 2016 win was in part because 4 million manufacturing jobs were lost. But a CNN fact check um, found that U.S. manufacturing employment um, actually went up during President Barack Obama's second term, and that's continued under Trump. So are those people going to do worse in an Andrew Yang economy? Well, manufacturing employment peaked at 17 million, and now it's about 12 million. And the 80% of that 5 million gap was because of automation of those manufacturing right. jobs. So there has there been a, a recent uptick in those jobs? Yes, and I hope it continues. Okay. But big picture, I spent seven years working in the Midwest and the South. And if you go through Michigan and Ohio and Western Pennsylvania, many of these communities that used to rely upon manufacturing have never really recovered. Mm -hmm. And there's a straight line up between the adoption of industrial automation in a voting area and the movement towards Trump and the Republicans. Mm -hmm. We all know he won by a relatively narrow margin in Pennsylvania, Ohio, right. Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, and if, if you look at the numbers, they clearly show that there's a, a direct relationship between the automation of jobs mm -hmm. and the movement towards Trump. Um, okay, I want to ask you about your freedom dividend plan. Some economists say the numbers don't really add up uh, in your in your plan to pay for this. Your your plan has come on. I'm wearing a math pin. I know, I know, but but you know, <laughs> uh, the, the the estimated cost is 2.8 trillion dollars. The UBI Center says. That your projection that your plan would raise between 800 and 900 billion dollars in government revenue through economic growth is unlikely. Explain it for people who are skeptical still. Yes. So, big picture, who's winning in the 21st century economy? It's Amazon, Facebook, Google, these trillion dollar tech companies that are not paying anywhere near their fair share in taxes. Mm -hmm. Amazon's literally paying zero in taxes, right. less than everyone watching this, despite the fact that they're closing 30% of our stores and malls forever. And being a retail clerk is still the most common job in this country. Mm -hmm. Average retail clerk's a 39-year-old woman making between 9 and $10 an hour. So if we put a mechanism in place where we get our fair share, a tiny slice of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad, and eventually every robot truck mile and mm -hmm. AI work unit, mm -hmm. we can generate hundreds of billions of dollars off the bat, and that number has a big up arrow attached to it. Mm 
And then when we put this money into Americans' hands, where does the money go? It goes right back into the local economy to car repairs and little league signups and daycare expenses. This is the trickle-up economy. Mm -hmm. And it's not just me saying this. If you look at Jamie Dimon or Ray Dalio, who've looked at the same numbers I have, they've said we should declare a national emergency around the fact that our economy is not including most Americans. Um, I want to shift real quick to some foreign policy issues because we're confronting a lot of them as a country right now. Um, uh, So I just want to get your thoughts on just a couple. Um, Syria. Would you send U.S. troops back into Syria to protect the Kurds from Turkey's incursion and ethnic cleansing there? Well, I certainly wouldn't have pulled the rug out from under our Kurdish allies. But the fact is, Reality on the ground shifts as soon as you do something and you can't undo it by sending troops back in. Big picture, I've signed a pledge to end the forever wars. We've been in a constant state of armed conflict for 18 years and counting, and that's not the will of the American people. That's not the way it was drawn up in the Constitution. So uh, uh, Trump announced he was pulling troops out. We've, in fact, sent troops back in to guard uh, the oil wells. Uh, oil fields. Um, would you keep those troops there? Or would you pull everyone out of Syria? I, I would talk to our military leaders and say, look, are our troops genuinely necessary to guard these oil fields? Uh, and if they were, then they would stay. If they weren't necessary, then I would pull them home as soon as possible. Um, Iran, since withdrawing from the JCPOA, uh, it's believed Iran has attacked oil tankers yep. in, in the Gulf of Oman and in Saudi Arabia. Uh, what would you do to lower tensions in Iran between Iran and the U.S.? Well, this wasn't just a bilateral agreement between us and uh, Iran that we pulled out of. Right. Like the, uh, there were other uh, long-standing allies who are still in that agreement. So what we have to do is we have what's to try. Yeah, what's left of the agreement? <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, if we leave, it's um, something of a shambles. Right. But we have to try and reconstitute that agreement and extend the timeline so that they make sense in a new context. That would de-escalate tensions very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not something that Americans want to have a inflamed. Middle East and potentially even uh, conflict with Iran. We've paid for we paid for that agreement with Iran the first time. Would yeah. you pay it again? To me, it's in our best interest to try and uh, move back any timeline of, of nuclearization in Iran. And so, to me, it would be an appropriate price to pay. Okay, stay right there. You're not off the hot seat just yet. I have more questions for Andrew Yang. Uh, stay tuned. I'm back with presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I want to ask you about a moment at uh, this week's debate where the candidates were asked if they uh, would give a gift or ask forgiveness of their fellow candidates. It was a weird question. You had the bad luck of going first. Uh, take a look. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Yang. Wow. <laughs> I don't think I have much to ask forgiveness for. You all can correct me on this. Um, In terms of a gift, uh, Elizabeth has done me the honor of starting to read my book. I would love to give each of you a copy of my book. (laughs) I mean, I found that moment really authentic, especially when moderators throw these sort of oddball questions at you on the spot. You had to go first. I liked your answer, but do you want, do you have a a do-over in mind? 
I can tell you what's going through my head. Tell me. So uh, I get it. And then uh, the first thing is, of course, I want to give everyone $1,000 a month. Because <laughs> right. that is the, right. the central... Gift uh, to everyone. Yeah, the yep. central gift of my campaign to, yes. to all Americans. But then I thought, oh, you know, my I've been... Um, trying to broaden the message a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I think my team would give you a hard time about that. Yes. Uh, and, and then I, I had, uh, you know, like a snarky thought. Uh, but then I was like, yeah, you don't want to end with something negative. Uh, oh, what so was the snarky I, thought? Well, the, the snarky thought was uh, something about, uh, like, the, the gift of uh, being able to see... Uh, what's happening in the 21st century <laughs> oh, okay. I in terms of so I then i was like ah, that. let's discard that one and, 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 <laughs> so that, um and, well, and then elizabeth is reading my book so then i thought well i genuinely would love it if the other candidates sure. read my book because i i believe the transformation of our economy due to technology is one of the the things that's changing everything well and since you said that book sales have shot up you told me uh, congrats. Oh, yeah. My publisher was very grateful. <laughs> I'm sure. Believe me. I, you know, as a, as a book author, I, I get it. Um, okay, so I want to take you back to a New York Times profile you did a while ago. You were all asked your favorite comfort food. And I got to tell you, I was very disappointed in your answer. Um, kind bars are not comforting. They're barely, barely food. Barely food. Do you ever have, like, a 10-piece nugget at McDonald's? Sure. I mean, maybe not all ten. I'm, I, if I'm going to indulge, I'd probably buy the six okay. and then <laughs> eat that and then feel a little bit less guilty. What sauce do you like with your nuggets? Uh, this is important stuff. I alternate between barbecue and sweet and sour. Oh, my God. That's exactly what I do. All right. All right. We're vibing here. Um, I read you grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I did not, but I am fascinated by this game. I have a lot of adult friends that play it. What's what kind of D and D wisdom could you impart to me? Well, you have to use your imagination. Uh, you end up developing all these narratives over the long haul, and you need to have a good relationship with the people you're playing with because it gets very, very uh, dramatic. Oh, and, and like personal. Well, you you become attached to your characters, and then sometimes something bad oh. happens. Uh, you know, you need to be able to go through that with just people like you. politics. Yeah, there's some lessons um, there. Okay, final question. It's very serious, um, especially with the holidays approaching. I need to know this. Do you think Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Die Hard's definitely a Christmas movie. That is the right answer. Oh, oh, oh you know, <laughs> all of it. All right. It's like embedded into the fabric of that movie. Um, say no more. Thanks. You'll have to come back on. Uh, presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I think you're tapping into something. Best of luck. Oh, thank you. All right. Happy holidays. I will be right back. Don't go anywhere. With the holidays coming up, some of you will likely be confronted with this age-old question as your opening presents. What the heck am I going to do with this thing? Well, necessity is the mother of invention, and thus was born regifting, which allows you to pass along that questionable item to someone who will better appreciate it or someone you don't actually like. While Seinfeld famously condemned the gauche practice, there is new reason to celebrate the tradition guilt-free. A study done by the Wall Street Journal and Stanford University uncovered some new data that proves people are more afraid of being judged for regifting than they are opposed to regifting. The research showed that original givers of gifts are far less offended by the regifting of their gift and that receivers were more likely to regift when there was implied permission to do so. So, regifters, science is with you. Regift in peace. 
I know I plan to. I want to wish you and your loved ones very happy holidays. That's it for me, but CNN isn't going anywhere. Make sure your plans include Linda Ronstadt, the first female pop icon, CNN Films, Linda Ronstadt, the sound of my voice. That premieres New Year's Day at 9 p.m. CNN Newsroom with Ana Cabrera is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.